Well, we have about, I think, about a half hour or so of time tonight, which I think should just be about right for us to maybe talk a little bit about some of the implications of this morning's message. And if you were here, uh, you heard that message, and you might have some questions about it. If you were not here, uh, maybe someone from memory or from their notes could uh, tell us how to respond to sinning Christians. What were the four distinct responses that we went over this morning as we discussed how to respond to sinning Christians? Someone tell me. We've got a mic right here, and you can tell all of us. You can either do it from memory or you can do it from your notes. By addressing them with forgiveness. Good. The first point was by addressing them with forgiveness. You remember we talked about the fact that if we have been forgiven so much in unpayable debt, it's, it should be, in one sense, a very easy thing for us to then turn around and grant the forgiveness when someone comes and seeks it from us. So if there is a sinning Christian, someone who has sinned especially against us, and they come and seek it and they repent of it, then we should overwhelm them with forgiveness. All right, excellent. First point. Second point. We should respond to sinning Christians by, over here, Mr. Byron Earls, by admonishing them in their sin. There are going to be occasions in which someone does not immediately repent of their sin. And when they are involved in sin, and it may be that they are involved in sin for a season. And if that's the case, we need to approach them and we need to admonish them. You remember I talked about the Greek word nutheteo, which is really a combination of two words, nous, which is the Greek word for mind, and tithemi, which means to put into or place into. And if you combine those, it's really a sense in which you are placing the Word of God into the mind of a person so that their sin issue can be corrected. That's what we're doing when we admonish, sometimes translated instruct, sometimes translated warn. And so we're admonishing them. You remember I talked about Colossians 3. We do this regularly in the church. We're admonishing folks with all wisdom, singing, making melody in our hearts. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we're admonishing in many other ways. All right? Third point. We respond to some sinning Christians by... Very good. Very good. And these are folks who just came their first Sunday, and they are the Burks, right? Look at that. Met them today in the reception line, so great to have you back with us. Yes, we, we respond to some sinning Christians by, what was that point again? Did everybody hear that? Avoiding those with crafty doctrine. You remember I quoted Ephesians chapter 4 that says that if we're not careful, we are going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And if we're not especially alert for crafty doctrine within the church, there are going to be some who say they're Christians, who say they're teaching the truth, maybe either within a leadership position or maybe in a small group or someone who wants to befriend you. It may even be someone who's here for a long time. I remember 
a couple of years ago, we had a situation in which someone who had a long-term relationship with the church ultimately forsook the person of Christ for the pursuit of other teachings. And so it can happen even with someone who's had years and years of involvement in ministry in the church. And so we need to avoid, and remember that was the word that I emphasized this morning that's mentioned several times, especially in the pastoral epistles. Avoid such people, avoid such people, all right? And then number four, respond to some sinning Christians by announcing the works of darkness. And one of those key passages was Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of that very idea of exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. All right, now those are the four points. Questions tonight. Someone might have a question, an implication question from those four points. Something that maybe wasn't clear or something that you want to make a comment on regarding those things. Any questions, comments? Yes. Let's, let's, let's talk in the mic so the tape can capture it. On the avoiding one? In some of the cases, it was pretty clear that you were supposed to avoid the person. Yes. In some of the cases, it was not quite as clear, and it was avoiding the activity. And so why don't you talk a little bit more about avoiding the activity versus avoiding the person and avoiding the person for an extended period of time. Good point. I think it is true that in some of those passages that I mentioned, especially in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that we're told to avoid the teaching, avoid the controversy, the myths, the genealogies, the old wives' tales, all of those things are mentioned in the pastoral epistles. And then sometimes Paul, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions names of people to avoid. And I think there's a reason behind that. Number one... We must avoid, in, in first place, the teaching itself. Because the teaching might not always be coming uh, from, from someone we're either familiar with, like someone inside the church. Maybe even in today in our culture, in the 21st century, it could be coming through the airwaves, it com- could be coming through CD, could be coming from someone that we're not particularly familiar with. So we need to, first of all, avoid the teaching that doesn't square with Scripture, the unsound or unhealthy doctrine. But in some cases, especially in the local church, if someone were to rise up and teach something that is deemed irresponsible or ungodly or false, then we must also at times expose the very person by not only avoiding them, of course, but then taking it one step further and allowing the church leadership to come alongside and to deal with that particular person. So I think those are very, very important. Now, it is also true that at times you may not sense that you're equipped to do something like that. It's never harmful to go to the leadership of the church and say, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this message. I'm not sure about this teaching. I'm not sure about this book. Sometimes for us it would come in the form of a book. Uh, Could someone give me a critique of this book? In fact, I've even thought that it might be good for us if we do this particular dialogical teaching maybe in the summer to maybe even start once a month by reading a book together that we think is either a book that needs to be read or digested or something that's very popular right now in the Christian book world and critiquing it, talking about it, 
Maybe something along those lines where we're getting involved in reading and rereading and digesting and critiquing. That's so good for the mind. So good for the mind. You remember we talked recently from Romans chapter 12 about the Christian mind. Well, one of the ways that you can develop your Christian mind is by reading good material or critiquing material that's very popular within the church. And in some cases, it may be that we have to work on avoiding either the teaching itself or the persons behind the teachings or both. Okay? Other questions? This is your time. Way in the back there. Lance, if you um, seek someone's forgiveness as a believer and they're a professing believer and you've sought their forgiveness and they've accepted your forgiveness, but you really don't want to, you you want to be repentive of, of sinning against them and you seek their forgiveness, but you really don't want to engage back in a relationship like a you know, close friendship or whatever it may be, does that somehow negate your uh, repentive state of, like you genuinely were sorry, but yet you really, for various reasons, don't want to... Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. In fact, I think it, it, it runs two ways. Probably the, the example you described, Tori, is something that is more rare. Usually on the other side, it's the person whom you have come to because you believe you've sinned against them, you seek their forgiveness, they grant you forgiveness, but then they say something along the lines of what I said this morning, I've been hurt. And even though they might say, I forgive you, they don't want to engage in a relationship with you because they don't know if they can trust you more fully because of this breach in the relationship. Or maybe they think something like this, I forgive you, and they say it, maybe not in just a mechanical way, but they they, they truly do mean that they forgive you for that particular sin, but because there was that breach, they're not sure they want to continue in, to engage in a relationship where there's a deepening of that relationship. And so they, they're distant. Now, some of that may be very natural and normal because there's been a problem, there's been an issue, even if that issue's been addressed. But I think in the Bible, and I think this, this can be borne out through the study of Scripture, I believe that forgiveness implies reconciliation. Forgiveness implies reconciliation. In other words, if you sin against someone, you seek their forgiveness, they grant you forgiveness, it really is not good for that person to say, I forgive you, but... dot, dot, dot. I forgive you, but I'm really not going to be close to you anymore. I forgive you, but I'm not sure we're going to be able to have a relationship anymore. And the same, of course, is true of someone who says, will you please forgive me? And the person says, yes. And maybe they're looking for the relationship to deepen because there's been some honesty and transparency. And yet the person who seeks the forgiveness says, now that I have the transaction, transaction completed, I'm not sure I want to re-engage with this person. I think that is unfortunate. I think that's counterproductive. I, I think it's counterproductive for the growth of the body of Christ. The best way to have a more deepening, lasting relationship with someone in the body of Christ, to say nothing of somebody in your family, is to go through the process of the seeking and the granting of forgiveness for the very purpose of the deepening of the relationship. Sin is going to occur 
in our hearts and in our lives and in these relationships that must be dealt with. They must be dealt with. And when they are dealt with, if you are two people who are attempting to have an ever-increasing, deepening relationship with the Lord, then I believe that you can have both forgiveness and reconciliation and a desire to deepen that relationship through that very transparent communication. Now, is it difficult? Yes. Is it sometimes very difficult? Yes. Is it absolutely necessary if two people profess to know and love Christ to deepen their relationship by working through the relational issues, the dynamics, more than yes? There is a title of a new book. I haven't read it yet, but I want to. And it's by uh, Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane, who, by the way, is the new executive director of the uh, Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, CCEF, which is a good ministry. It's called Relationships, colon, A Mess Worth Having. I think that's right on. I think if we think in terms of relationships are sticky and messy and ugly and hard and difficult, they're also a joy, they're also a wonderful blessing. They're the kinds of things that are a mess worth having. And a relationship in which a person who seeks forgiveness has that forgiveness granted, but there's no deepening of that relationship, no continuing of that relationship, or the other way around, someone grants you forgiveness, but they don't want to go ahead with you in the relationship, is a very shallow one to start with. It ought to continue, and in in some ways I would say it must continue if people are going to be together in the local church. The challenge of this local church is that we're so large that someone could say, well, I forgive you for, for your sin against me. The transactional part of that is done. And then someone says, I'm just going to avoid that person. I'm going to sit in a different place in the worship center. I'm not going to develop... Uh, the same kinds of relationships with their circle of friends and my circle of friends. I'm going to pull away. Maybe I leave a care group and I go to another care group. I think those are sad. I think that's a sad way to operate. And I think that's a lack of love. Now, having said that, it's not just a lack of love. It could also be that there are other dynamics within that relationship that still need to be worked out. It may not be just as easy as, well, you sinned against me, uh, I sought your forgiveness, you granted it, now we ought to act as though nothing ever happened. That's not as easy in relationships as we may want it to be. There are probably some other things that need to be worked out. If that's the case, then grab grab a, a senior partner, grab a mature Christian, grab a pastor, grab an elder, grab a deacon and say, I think we're we're gonna need some help here. We're gonna need some help. I think those are the ways that maybe we can begin to work through those things, okay? All right, other questions? Up here in the balcony? Up here in the balcony. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, Phil? Is, it, is repentance a necessary ingredient for forgiveness to happen? Repentance on the part of the person who sinned? I would, if not, what about Jesus on the cross? I mean, if so, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Excellent question. I think everybody probably heard that, didn't you? I believe that repentance is absolutely required in this matter of forgiveness. 
I don't believe that there's any such thing as someone who says, would you please forgive me without repenting, unless it's a sham request for forgiveness. You can see that in the Luke 17 passage that we talked about. If someone is repentant, then they're genuinely desiring forgiveness. If someone only wants forgiveness because they want the transaction to be quote-unquote completed, but they're really not interested in repentance, then they don't really understand what forgiveness is all about. So I think repentance and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. Okay? Yes? My question is about, um, I have two parents who profess to know Christ, but do not attend church, um, do not have anything to do with I mean, anything that has to do with the Lord anymore. Um, and it's not a secret in our house, um, but just through the course of our relationship, um, we are not, you know, super close to them any longer. So is it now my job to go and confront them and say, you know, you're not um, even going to a church any longer? Um, so if you could give me some, like, tracks to run on and think about and what do I say and what do I not say, <laughs> that would be helpful. That is one of the most difficult, especially as it relates to adult children's relationship to their parents, especially those parents who would profess to know Christ but who have no relationship to a local church. Obviously, if it's a pattern and if it's something that's happened over a number of years... I think there is a legitimate question to ask about whether or not someone can have a legitimate claim to loving Christ and serving the Lordship of Christ if they have no relationship to His church. In one sense, you could say that maybe there was a stillbirth in the relationship of someone who says, I'm born again, but I have nothing to do with the Lord's church. Did, in fact that relationship with Christ begin at that point or not? If it did, then the Lord knows how to encourage His people to fellowship with other people in the context of a local church. Because, as John Calvin once said, and don't misunderstand what he's saying, he's emphasizing this very point when he says this, there is no salvation outside the church. And what he means by that is this. God is working in a kingdom program that right now includes as its primary mode of operation the church. And if someone has a self-styled kind of salvation that says, I want to be saved, I want to be Christ's own, but I want to have no relationship to anyone else outside the context of my own religion, and it's not going to include anybody else, then I think there's a fair question about whether or not that person really understands salvation. Because salvation, especially in our culture, is not simply or merely an individual thing. Is it an individual thing that every single person must be saved, must personally repent? Yes. But is that the end-all and be-all of what it means to have a salvation experience? No. Because salvation is something that God does when in Acts chapter 2 he created the church and he created every individual within that church. And when we worship, we worship together 
in the context of the local church. Now, practically, in terms of, in terms of some tracks to run on, it's very difficult because a, a, an adult daughter or an adult son in a marriage context who have their own children who are the grandchildren of the parents have a very delicate balance of trying to say, we want you to have a relationship with us and our children, but we don't want to have to continually answer the questions that will be created in this relationship if you maintain that you're still Christians like us and yet you don't attend a local church. Now there would probably be two approaches to that. One approach would be that a set of children, adult children, uh, a daughter and a son-in-law in your case, who would say, I still believe that I could have some level of relationship, especially with my kids, toward their grandparents where I continually instruct them after they've spent time by saying, let me emphasize again that there is no salvation outside the church. And we, of course, know what I mean by that. There is another approach that would say, because of this and a multitude of other things, and having some knowledge of that situation, I know what some of those other things are. It may be that a set of adult parents adult children say to their parents there can't really be a relationship if there's a maintaining not only of a relationship with Christ outside the context of local church but other inconsistencies and other things that are harming your relationship with our children harming them spiritually for which someone would say I don't believe it's productive or best for that time to be spent I'd I'd probably without going into more detail and and having more individual counsel say that I don't think either of those are automatically the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Each individual situation has to have its, its own evaluation. And I think that ultimately you and your husband have to make a conscious decision one way or the other given the individual merits and then pray fervently that they would indeed genuinely come to a place where they not only love Christ, but they love Christ as the head of the church. Okay? Hey, Lance. Yes. Upstairs again. Yes. It's really great having a sound guy. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can answer, ask any question they want to. Uh, in, the, in the context of the four responses, you talked about forgiveness you know, seven times a day if need be. And then, of course, uh, admonishment, which would be somebody who's not repented and, and staying away or announcing, which would be somebody who's not repented. What about uh, discerning? Uh, what room is there for discerning if, if uh, the person who is expressing repentance uh, doesn't seem to to have genuine fruit of that. In other words, you know, it would be easy to say, well, this is the seventh time you've done this to me today. I don't think you repent. And yet Christ obviously anticipates there that there is a true repentance and forgiveness even though the behavior is repeated. And yet in other times we would look and say, "I, I don't think this person is repenting. Can you speak to to that difficulty? That's a good point. That's one of the implication questions I thought someone might ask. And that is, it sounds a little easy in one sense for Luke 17 and Jesus to say, 
And if they sin seven times a day, or the 70 times seven in the Matthew context, then they come and say, I'm repenting again. It seems so easy for the words to be there, but is the heart and the behavior going to catch up? Because one of the easy things for us to do, because we are notorious fruit inspectors, is to say, but when I look at your life, I'm not sure I see the manifestation of true and genuine repentance. So therefore, I'm going to pull back a little bit and say, are you really repentant? I don't think that's an illegitimate question, but that may be one of those where you need to bring some others in to the situation and begin to ask the question, like John the Baptist did in Matthew chapter 3 with the Pharisees who had a religiosity about them, and they even came to do a work of repentance, and that was to be baptized. And what was John the Baptist's word to them? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So I think there's a legitimate sense, Jim, that we can say, I need to see, not as though we're the, again, the authority on their lives, but I think there's a legitimacy to say, I think we need to see a pattern that repentance ultimately brings. And what is that pattern? A change of behavior. Repentance, the very word metanoia, means a change of mind that inevitably leads, if you're a genuine Christian, to a change of behavior. And if a person continues to manifest day after day after day after day what appears to be a pattern of a verbalizing of repentance, but it doesn't appear as though that repentance is really genuine, then I think you can begin to question. Now, how do you begin to question? What's the process there? What's the format? Well, I think if you gather others around you who also know that person and step up a level of accountability, it may be that you also bring the church leadership into that situation and say, could you help me? Because remember, if that person is really repentant, they're going to welcome that, right? They're going to say, if, if, if what you say is true, that I'm not really repentant in terms of my lifestyle, in ter- terms of the habits of my life, I want the increased accountability. I want the increased scrutiny in my life. So they're supposed to say, in theory, I welcome that. If they don't, then maybe there's a sense in which you can legitimately question whether or not they really want to be held accountable or repent. But all of that, of course, must be sensitively done and done in love and not done with one single Christian with another single Christian in such a way that only one Christian is doing the evaluating of that person. That's why we have safety in numbers. That's why we have a multitude of counselors. There is wisdom. That's why we need each other, by the way, to get back to the prior question. No self-styled pursuer of Christ is going to have the opportunity to know whether or not they're truly repenting. To get back to the, the former question that Teresa asked, how can someone know if they're not inside the church whether or not they are a genuine repenting person? We need others in the body of Christ to help us and assist us in that. So that's the, that's the way I would answer that particular question. Okay, Michael. And this will be maybe, maybe one other after that if I can, if I can get it in quickly. Uh, here's, the, here's the mic, buddy. Okay, what I was going to ask was, is there anything that you can do if you, are, if you have gone to a person and repented and said that you want 
forgiveness and you do everything you can and this person said, you know, I'll forgive you, but they don't want to have anything to do with you. Is there anything else that you can do? Well, it sort of gets back to that, that same question that Tori Cobb asked a moment ago. I would say this. If a person is genuinely repentant and it appears as though the person that they've repented to doesn't want to have further dealings with them, then the person who is expressing that repentance has a legitimate right then, right in quotes, of course, because none of us really have rights, they have a legitimate right to say, I want to bring some others with me and then go to the person who is refusing the further relationship and to seek out why they don't really want to have a continuing relationship with me. Maybe there are other hurts, other frustrations, other issues that haven't really been dealt with. And usually you could call upon a counselor, a pastor, a church leader, a trusted friend, maybe a trusted mutual friend between the two of them who would be able then to understand. Maybe that person has seen some things that are blind spots in one person or the other and they're able to give insight into getting through the roadblock of that relationship. Okay? All right, one last question. Yes. Um, Lance, can you Mr. Talk, Savory. Can, can you talk a little bit, um, I realize this is not what you're saying, but it seems as though it's sort of implicit in the discussion that we have a right to take some kind of offense. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I, I thoroughly agree with that. I'm sure at some point we do because of pridefulness, et cetera. Can you address that and, and what our right to take offense is, so to speak, especially when we're admonished to, to suffer with uh, unjustly at times without complaint, um, and, and the idea of dying to self? Good question. Great question to end on, too, by the way. There are some Proverbs. We dealt with a few of them as we've gone through you know, these first 17 chapters of Proverbs on Sunday nights. There are some Proverbs and are reiterated in the New Testament, book of James, for example, that say things like this, it is the glory of man to overlook a matter, and related Proverbs. It seems as though Christians presume that those kinds of verses mean that the best way to have a relationship with someone is to continually overlook what they're doing and not take an offense, and that that's the higher road of Christianity. That's the more noble. That's the more mature. Now, it sounds good, but I believe the correct understanding of some of those Proverbs, and as they are reiterated in the New Testament, is that that's not actually what it's saying. What it's really saying, and I think I can bear this out through, through teaching, and I think I did that maybe in, the, in uh, the 17th chapter of Proverbs in uh, one of those three messages, it is true that it is a glory of a man to overlook a matter, as the proverb says. But it implies that the transaction of repentance and forgiveness is, has already taken place. Those proverbs are implying that if there is an issue in the relationship, it's not because someone hasn't come and repented and someone hasn't come and, and granted forgiveness when the other person has, has sought it. What it's saying is, once the transaction is concluded, then I'm not going to bring that up again. I'm going to overlook it. Love covers a multitude of sins. See, when you understand it in that way, it's not talking about someone who's just constantly overlooking sins 
in their spouse's life or a fellow person in the church. It's not talking about that. If it were, then it would do injustice to so many other passages that talk about confronting somebody with their sin. You see, if you had both of those on parallel lines, they'd come in conflict with one another. What you really need to do is understand those passages that talk about love covering a multitude of sins as the transaction of the granting of forgiveness because forgiveness has been sought has already occurred. And then it is somebody's bound and determined duty as a Christian to love or cover the sins that have occurred which have been repented of and confessed and forgiveness sought in that relationship. That's what it's talking about. And the parallel passages in the New Testament that speak to things like that are these. In Ephesians and in Colossians, it talks about bearing with one another, having no anger, wrath, malice, slander in your heart against other people. And the strongest evidence that you're a growing, maturing Christian will be severely tested when someone comes to you who's hurt you deeply, they seek your forgiveness, you grant them forgiveness, and then you have a desire or a temptation to bring that up again to them or to someone else. And maybe that sin occurs again. And maybe there's more repentance and more forgiveness and more granting of that forgiveness. And then you want to let your buddy know how much so-and-so has hurt you. Or you've got to watch out for so-and-so. And then you start gossiping about that person. Or, say in a husband-wife relationship, even husband-wife relationship in the church, those things are happening within the context of the family that then bleeds over into, into the spiritual family. And then problems in that relationship develop. Or it's between believers in the fellowship, the spiritual family of God. And those relationships are damaged to some degree. Sin is needing to be worked through. Sin is being worked through. And our response is not to have, once the transaction is completed, wrath and anger and malice and slander in our hearts against that person. That is the context out of which those passages about love covering a multitude of sins only make sense. Because the very word cover itself is implying the sense that something has been covered already and love is covering it all the more. Stuart Scott and I, by the way, have been talking about this recently and he and I would like to do a book on this subject because it appears as though multitudes of Christians assume that there there really isn't a case at times for there to be a confrontation a seeking of forgiveness, a granting of that forgiveness. There just is some kind of uh, blanket forgiveness that people just sort of with the mere wave of the hand throwing it across people, even those who've hurt that person deeply, and they think it's the noble and the mature thing to do just to say, well, I know I've been sinned against. I know it's wrong what they're doing. I'll just forgive them anyway. And yet the problem I believe there occurs when you keep thinking about it, you keep meditating upon it, you keep harboring that in your heart because that transaction has really not been dealt with and then you are very easily prone and tempted to respond with anger and wrath and malice and slander in your heart against that person because the relationship has not really been dealt with. Now it gets into 
a somewhat controversial subject, and that is, what if somebody doesn't come to me to seek my forgiveness? What am I to do there? Well, I believe Luke 17 and some other passages help us. You stand ready to forgive. You stand ready at a moment's notice because you're guarding your own heart. You're saying, even though that person has sinned against me in many ways, I am not in my heart going to choose to be angry and have wrath and malice and slander in my heart against that person. And I eagerly stand ready to forgive them the moment they come to seek it from me. What if they don't come? What if they die? What if it's a a parent? What if it's a friend? What if it's a fellow church member? What if there's no opportunity for that forgiveness uh, to be sought from me? What do I do? Do I forgive them from my heart? In a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. In the sense of yes, what you're really saying by forgiving them in my heart is that I hold no ill will toward them. I don't have wrath or malice or slander or anger in my heart to that person. In a sense, no, because if they are unable to seek your forgiveness, you're unable in that sense to grant it. But you're ready to do it. You stand ready to do it. And if it's possible, you pray fervently that the Lord will impact their heart so that that offense could be rectified. Now, to answer your question finally, is there a sense in which I need to be a stronger Christian and not take so many offenses onto myself? Yes. I think one of the problems in the church today is that people are more easily offended than they should be. Now, that doesn't relate to what I said about love covering a multitude of sins. It sounds like it, but it isn't. And what I mean by that is this. I believe that there are multitudes of people in the churches that we would say are evangelical who have what I call an overtrained conscience, where they take offense at things that the Bible itself does not either command us to do or to stay away from. And there are people who think there are certain acts that are free for us to do in the Christian life are actually sins or wrongs or offenses or bad things to do. We're going to get into this in Romans 14 and 15 when we talk about the unity of strong and weak Christians to each other and things that are not explicitly said to be wrong and when some Christians do them, those with an overtrained conscience say, I'm offended by that. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's causing me to stumble. Is that automatically right? And should they automatically say no to that? You come and hear those studies in Romans 14 and 15. <laughs> uh, boy, I open myself up so much, don't I? I think we're done, Pastor Todd.